Hey everyone, welcome back to Reality 2.0. I am Catherine Druckmann. I am talking to Doc Searles, who you know. And today we have Kyle Rankin as our guest again, which is lovely. Kyle is the president of Purism, a social purpose corporation. They make hardware and software, actually, and privacy respecting things. We love having Kyle on. Before we get started, we are going to talk about a couple of things that are very exciting. Doc has some updates to Project VRM. And Kyle, we have a couple of things. First is his starring role on CNBC, <laughs> which we'll get to in a minute. <laughs> it was fabulous. It was so exciting to see you in a CNBC spot. So so let me have that one moment of joy. <laughs> um, and then, and then uh, we're going to talk about um, the swing back to open standards, which is we're going to talk a little bit about something that Kyle wrote on the Purism blog because it was fantastic as usual. And uh, yeah, so that's that's what we're talking about today. But before we get into that, I wanted to remind everyone to visit our website at reality2cast.com. That is the number two in the URL. You can sign up for a newsletter and Doc has been sending some good stuff out. Uh, maybe I will <laughs> as well eventually, but we don't, we do not spam you. There is no particular regular cadence there. So please sign up and, and get the the little drops of, of interesting uh, information as they come. I also wanted to mention that we've set up our own Mastodon server. Mm. I don't mention it because it's public and open or anything cool like that. However, I do want to mention that we've set it up and we will be moving from our old Mastodon instance to this one and we'll see where that goes. I mean, I suppose we could open it up eventually, but we're definitely not there yet. We need to learn the lay of the land but uh yeah so so keep an eye out for, for that and it will be linked on our website at reality2cast.com so uh yeah so kyle a couple of things um kyle rankin star of cnbc <laughs> 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 no it was great it was okay also todd weaver but uh but they had this really great piece which we will of course link to talking about supply chain security and and that's something that, well, I talk about a ton because I, you know, I talk about software supply chain security bunch and, and, and hardware supply chain security is also very interesting. So Purism is one of, one of few, or is it the only phone manufacturer that, that makes made in the USA cell phones? My understanding is we're the only ones that have made in USA electronics in a phone. That's kind of amazing. Which is sort of how they, um, how they found us. You know, they wanted to do yeah. the, the idea behind the, so little background. So CNBC has a sort of a, a digital um, arm that, that pu publishes longer form videos on their website and all of their digital properties that aren't necessarily on their sort of two minute snippets that you would see on, on like cable news mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, and so this allows them to cover topics with a little bit more in depth than you could on like a two minute snippet. So this was like a 17 minute or something, uh, documentary style piece on sort of asking the question, why do, don't we, people make phones in the United States? Why aren't smartphones made in the U S why are they made overseas? And when they, when the, uh, the, the person who was behind this, asking this question, who wanted to do a piece on this, who pitched this originally, started doing research, we came up. And so they contacted mm -hmm. us and just, I mean, they were, they really did their homework on the entire background of everything. And so it was really, it was really cool. Um, and yeah, they came and, and we showed them all of our manufacturing, you know, walked through the whole process. Todd did this, I mean, just incredible walk through step-by-step -step of the process of like bare bare PCB all the way to finished phone in your hand kind of thing. And we walked it through step-by-step step as it was happening on the, on the manufacturing line. Um, and yeah, and then they interviewed us and asked a lot of different questions about, um, you know, supply chain and USA manufacturing and all kinds of different stuff. And so, yeah, I have a, I have a, a brief interview in there where I even put on like a button up shirt and everything. So, um, not a, great. not a black hoodie like I'm wearing now because we're talking about security and you have to wear a black hoodie apparently. But anyway, uh, yeah, so we, uh, <laughs> and so I talked about all kinds of stuff, mostly focused on security um, when they were talking, when we were asking questions. But I guess the gist of it was uh, talking about why hardware supply chain security is important, in particular, making the phone in the U.S. and my take on it's a little different from what I think a lot of people would expect from uh, like the, the normal um, assumption you would make as well. 
and some people totally, this is some people's reason for doing something in the U.S. There's people who want to do it for patriotic reasons or supporting local um, local workers and that sort of thing. And that's, you know, perfectly legitimate reasons to, to want to do that. But from a security standpoint, the reason we do it is, at least in my mind, is less specifically saying that we think one country is less trustworthy than another country or something like that, and more about reducing the links in a chain. So for instance, Uh, we've been making Librem keys in the US for years now. Uh, Originally, the very, very first generation of Librem key was manufactured by NitroKey. So we use NitroKey's design. I mean, we've been perfectly open about that. We use their firmware for the Librem key. And NitroKey made the first generation of Librem keys. But we wanted to move uh, Librem key production to the United States, to our facility in, in the United States. One, it's sort of a testing ground because it's a pretty simple... Uh, device to make. And so that was sort of like a good first step into this. Uh, but second, it wasn't because we thought either Nitro Key was untrustworthy as a, as a manufacturer or that Germany was an untrustworthy country to do manufacturing in. You know, it was it, the reason we wanted to move it to the US is because it was a security sensitive product. Every extra link in the supply chain is an opportunity for tampering. So you make sure. something in a different country, now it has to be boxed up. So one, there's tampering potentially at the facility. Then it's boxed up and shipped. There's another opportunity for tampering. Then it goes overseas and lands somewhere. That's another opportunity. Then it gets shipped from there um, to fulfillment. That's another opportunity for um, tampering. So the fewer links in the chain you have, the easier it is to inspect those and have you know and to secure those as best that you can. So same sort of idea behind you know the USA phone is we, you know, literally make the PCB in the same, you know, in this, the same park, the same area where we do shipping and fulfillment. So, you know, we put all the PC, the finished motherboards on a cart and we cart them over from where they were made and tested over to where they get, you know, put in the cases and, and uh, shipped out to people. So that, you know, there's just f- fewer links in the chain and it oversight's a lot easier. That's really interesting. So it's really just about your your little trusted enclave there, your physical space, and reducing the number of potential points of failure. And that's really what it's about. Yeah, I mean, so for instance, we'll, we will have people in the EU who say, yes, but I don't trust the USA. So you should make it over here. Like, yeah, but if we made it over there, then shipped it to us and then shipped it back to you, that would be mm-hmm. further links in the chain. So we would really want to set up an entire um, EU facility that did, did it start to finish? If we were, for example, going to do that, you know, because for the same for the same reason, you know, that um, well, my other argument is okay. Well, a lot of people who will have that argument uh, do it because of fears about the NSA and things. And my argument's always, well, do you think that the NSA's reach is hampered when it's international? It seems like to me that at least on paper, legally speaking, they are more restricted on what they can do to you on U.S. soil to U.S. citizens. Um, and have and the gloves are off when you're talking about uh, non-U.S. Uh, uh, locations. But anyway, that's a digression. Oh, interesting stuff. I you know I, I enjoyed it. I mean, aside from the obvious uh, excitement of seeing you in, in the in the spot at all, mm-hmm. it was good. It was very interesting. I you know I found myself you know I'm watching and they're 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 like you said you know covering the the manufacturing facility and the interview with Todd and all of it was uh, quite interesting. Plus pulling in interviews from people representing larger companies. Uh, past interviews with Tim Cook or, or whoever else saying, well, we, you know, we can't, the re- reasons why you can't. And then, you know, conversely, here, here's a, an example of people who can. So it was, it was quite interesting. Highly recommend. I will link to it. Doc, did you, did you have a question that you wanted to? Oh, well, I've, where my mind goes with it um, is actually informed by, it's not a tangential issue, but it's possibly a related one, which is having to rely on a on a, on big parties of one kind or another. And uh, right now, my email is down um, because it's hosted by Rackspace in its Exchange server, and they're completely hosed. They've been hosed for almost twelve hours, well, that's not- and it's a huge issue. And and I've I've complete dependence on them. I can't go anywhere else. <laughs> you know, this has been. This has been a, I mean, I can, I used to have my, you know, used to have an SMTP and IMAP server sitting under my desk. I don't need more. I'm not qualified to run what you need to run now. Um, so I rely on them, but it doesn't work. Um, and I wonder, is, and this may even be a bridge to open and closed, where that we're, 
There's something related, I think, and Kyle, you can correct me or improve on this thought if it is a thought, um, and I'm wrong. Um, something related between the need to make stuff elsewhere, whether it's, you know, with, with anybody, any company qualified to make something that's a part that you need or to provide a service that you need it has to be big, has to be a certain size. And those tend to be closed or exclusive in some ways. And at the same time, we need independence as well. So what you're working on, Kyle, is is really independence, I think, and more than anything else. And it's a independence for a company in a in a B two B world. And we need independence in the in the in the C to C and C to B world um, as well. I'm in that world of hurt right now with email, but I think it's of a larger piece of some sort, um, and it. It's compounded by the tendency of political problems to jump in the way as well. I mean, right now, everybody wants to scramble to get their manufacturing or something outside of China, or and they can't, you know? So anyway, I don't know if that's all related or not, but it's all jumbled up in my mind. There's not only something related there, but something that's a great segue maybe into, into the next topic, mm-hmm. which is, you know, things tend... What we've noticed is things tend to sort of consolidate into maybe a duopoly or a triopoly, maybe or something where there's a notion that monopolies are bad, right? And so there, so if something has a strict monopoly, in theory at least, there's some sort of anti-competitive method to shut it down. But so as a result, it's a lot easier to create a situation where you have, you know, two choices or something like that. You know, maybe three choices where things tend to consolidate. And then the problem with that is it, it generally goes okay up until the point that um, if you have one choice or zero cho- or zero other choices, what happens when there's uh, when that one choice does something that you either don't like or um, you know has a pro- some other problem? Like what are your options? So you know in your case you you have a dependency on email from this one provider in theory you could move it but it would be somewhat of i mean it would be easier than for example some other service that you don't have other options where someone else could be hosting it in theory um, but it's still you know some mm. there's some pain there but it's even more if it were say some sort of proprietary service uh, let's say that it was it was slack chat for instance so it's a you know Right. Since yeah, exactly. You had some sort of yeah. strong dependency in Slack chat and they had some sort of outage for a long time and you're unhappy with whatever it would be, and you d- depended on that and had been for years. It would be more challenging to pick that up and take that somewhere else because no one else is offering Slack chat. Now, they may be offering other things that can do that functionality, maybe messaging, but not Slack, you know, because it's a custom thing. Uh, and we've seen something similar in social media uh, over the last month or so, because we've had uh, a lot of people, we've had uh, Twitter uh, get acquired and not everyone is happy with all of the decisions that the, that the new um, CEO of Twitter has been making. Uh, but what they people have discovered is that it's a little bit harder to vote with your feet or have a competitive market in a way because it's, proprietary, right? You can't just, you can't easily up and move, although there have been plenty of mechanisms uh, now with things like Mastodon, where you can find people as long as they're willing to move over. But network effect, we talked about this many times, how network effects, um, Mm -hmm. it's all put into place. People, companies understand that if you make it difficult to move off of one platform to another, that friction is incredibly important because you have to have enough people willing to go with you to another platform uh, to, to, be concerned about a competitor. So if you make that as, as difficult as possible, then people will be stuck with your platform regardless of your decisions. Yeah, that is a, that is a, hey, a great segue. segue. Um, <laughs> so can, can you just kind of unpack a little bit the article that you wrote, the, the blog post? Give us a quick summary. I mean, sure. I've read it. But. Yeah, so... Yeah, I've covered some of it, but not so the whole thing. I, don't think. I wrote this yeah. a, like a week or two ago, I think, when I was... Uh, I was seeing after having used Mastodon for a number of weeks or a number of years, um, I had noticed over the last couple of weeks that not just that I started seeing some people move over, but I started seeing wholesale, almost all of InfoSec Twitter, for instance, move over Mm -hmm. to Mastodon. And so, and notice my own feed habits, my own social media habits changing because everyone that I followed or wanted to see had now moved over there. And 
my personal feed on Twitter was is most, I mean, honestly, these days is mostly just um, uh, repeats of people who cross post on both. And one or two people have made the move and the rest, it's just a ghost town of, of silence most of the time, which was, but Mastodon's incredibly active and there's a post all the time. So in any case, that got me thinking about the fact that not only are we seeing people move, but I'm seeing all of these people that have moved over. It's almost like they were in an abusive relationship and they're now not <laughs> in one anymore. Like if you read the comments, they're like, wow, so happy. Yeah, they're so happy. They're sort of like, wow, I don't have this algorithm that is posting these things I don't want to see. And I, I, I don't have to worry about, you know, whether enough people like my post so that it gets viewed by everyone who follows me. And, and I don't have to deal with all of this sort of abuse and all the other things that have, that happened in the past. And they, and I, and some of them are even saying, you know, they're discovering, oh, wait, I, I locked the Mastodon instance in a couple of years ago and never used it. And now I'm back and now I want to move. Oh, wait, I can move to something else. You know, all the, all the cool kids are over on this instance, for instance, and I want to do that. And they're able to, and they are con- sort of contrasting the ease of that. And well, it's not perfect. I mean, I think we've even talked about that. It's still easier than the move they made from Twitter. So anyway, mm-hmm. I was noticing all of that. And it got me thinking about the last time I saw, I, I started realizing, I think we are actually beyond just sort of some people using Mastodon. I'm seeing people get a refreshed, a renewed appreciation for open standards and the freedoms that that gives and the benefits that that gives. And for some people, I suspect it's for the very first time. Like they maybe have never really, they weren't part of the previous waves. And I realized this is a historical trend, sort of the pendulum swings back and forth between everything being locked up and everything uh, and people being fine with that to a point. And then it gets to a point where people start seeing the, the pains and the downsides of everything being sort of centrally controlled. And then it swing, the pendulum swings back toward openness. And so the, the article was sort of my observations on the last time this happened, which was during the dot-com boom and bust, where you had, and during the dot-com boom, everyone was trying to portalize the internet and have everyone go through like AOL or Yahoo or centralized portals to view the web. And when uh, the dot-com bust happened, you started seeing this renewed interest in going toward open standards. That's when things like Jabber had its heyday. Um, you started having, um, which was a, in a open standard chat protocol. And you started seeing people using web blogs instead of that they were self-hosted or hosted on a provider that aided that, uh, but still under their control, things like that. And there was this also this beyond that, a sort of a, a blossoming sort of the golden era of Linux, I would say, um, where you really started seeing Linux appear everywhere on the server side, where before it was very proprietary. It was like proprietary Solaris and a little bit of Windows. Uh, but it was really starting being Linux everywhere. And the, even the desktop started seeing, like Linux desktop started getting interest. But then that went away, not went away completely, but we, we swung back the other way. And so the blog post was sort of looking at the past to try to gauge uh, where where we could be going in the future because it's not going to be perfectly a match, but we can use that as clues and hints um, for why did we go from this open open era that was great to being closed and locked in again, and then what does that teach us about what happened, what could cause that in the future? I have some thoughts about that. When, one is that um, the closed stuff run by a big, large, or successful company in the middle can do a lot of stuff that the open stuff can't at first, at least. It can get scale, can do security, can do, uh, can scale up, can do all kinds of things. Um, some of these things succeed by error. I think Twitter is an example of that. Twitter was just a, a simple little thing that was a messaging service that a little company called Odeo created on the side, and it ended up being this $44 billion debacle that we're looking at now. But in the meantime, it became very, very useful, and it became useful for messages to the world, and that's really what Twitter was at first. And I think the, I think following was an innovation meant, I think, in a way, the in the same way that instances are meant with, with Mastodon, they're different, but they're analogous in a certain way, where you're sort of confining your audience to people who are interested and. And not just an audience. And I have to say right now, I mean, 
Twitter is the most useful place to go to see about this Rackspace fail. If you're unless if you're not a client uh, and you don't know how to log into their server, which thankfully still works, and you can look at the alerts on there. It's a great, great place to find what the news is because lots of people can participate in it. It's been enormously helpful to journalism. It's been, I've read a, a fair amount about what they call Black Twitter, which is itself a very large community that feels in trouble right now. And there, there's a something similar to this. When, when you get a lot of vertical integration, like we have with Amazon right now, you see, I would put it this way, um, digital, I think advertising corrupts and digital advertising corrupts absolutely. And I, I say that because Amazon is totally corrupted by advertising right now. It's advertising that it's in an, a unique position to find out what people are interested in and want. And they use that out in the open web uh, in ways to, that makes in some ways their advertising perhaps more personal than advertising you'll get through uh, Google's AdSense, or, for, or and almost as good as you get maybe with Facebook, where they can get very personal because um, they're really close to you, as it were, if you're an active participant. But what's happened on an actual Amazon page for a given product is if you scroll down, just in a monstrous amount of advertising, really, what amounts to advertising before you actually get to what makes the product valuable and what you, how you can compare it to other products and how you answer people answer questions about it. The personal participation in Amazon at that level is now subordinated to promotional bullshit uh, at the top of it. And that's one way that they're, and you can't really substitute for Amazon. It is so good at what it does vertically. They, they own distribution in a large way. They are, they are right in the same game as FedEx and, and UPS and the U.S. Postal Service and, and other freight forwarding operations. They are the leading, they're the leading operate, leading company in, in freight forwarding and in logistics and all that stuff. And that's on top of AWS, which does probably a better job than whatever exchange is doing in Rackspace right now. Um, and that's, that's part of the, that's part of the close thing as well. But I wanted to, before I give up the mic for a second, because there are all these thoughts are running through my mind. You mentioned in your in your blog post about XMPP and uh, which is known as just as Jabber in the beginning, and RSS. Uh, XMPP I think is still being used in some places, but it failed to become the widespread way that everybody used chat. Which had it succeeded at least by its intent, by Jeremy Miller's intent in the first place, and he'd be good to have on the show. Actually, it was going to be the the like XMPP and. And IMAP are for mail. It would be the way to do chat and um, and say that you're present or you're not present because that was part of that protocol as well. Uh, and yeah, we covered it a lot in Linux Journal back in the turn of the, the millennium. And we used it. Uh, <laughs> that was our primary. And we used it. Oh, yeah, we had a Jabber server yeah. at the Berkman Center when when I was active there. They had a Jabber server and it was fabulous. It worked really well. Everybody used it. They stood it up. It was internal. There it was. Very handy. Um, and, um, uh, but the other thing was RSS. RSS never went away. RSS is still there. Dave Weiner is doing great stuff with RSS right now with Feedland, Feedland. Um, he's got a community of people developing on it. He's got open source behind it. Um, just doing a lot of great work there and look up RSS on, 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 uh, on Google. You'll find like 4 billion results or something like that. Pretty much every site in the world is putting out RSS for, for whatever they're publishing. It's still a, it's still a real thing, and so, it's stuff like that that still keep me, give me hope, as it were. <laughs> so, I just wanted to pull apart those two on yeah, two there. I would like to see RSS make a comeback, a real comeback of you know with, with users. Not obviously, people are still obviously producing a lot of content via RSS feeds, yeah. for example, podcasts and, and, and others, but I, yeah. I, I don't see as much consumption that way as, as back in, you know, not that long ago, it, it was ubiquitous. That's how you consumed content. Yeah. Good. So you had Google reader, yeah. you had other readers and everybody used them, but yeah. yeah. Like many, I mean, I still use both of those technologies today. I mean, I, I use the main way I access, Me too, to, yeah. access news is through a reader that uses RSS still. And I still have an XMPP server myself that I use. 
for various things. Oh, of um, course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, for instance, there's, this, cool. there's this really cool um, VoIP service called Jump Chat. I'll give them a shout out where you can get a real SIP number and they have a SIP the POTS gateway. So you get a real phone number. Um, you can do SIP calls with it. You can also, uh, but here's the cool thing about it is that it not only allows you to, you know, do SIPs of, to POTS uh, phone calls and everything, you can also receive SMSs. And so if someone sends you an SMS on your, your jump chat number, it gets forwarded to you as an XMPP message. So if you have an XMPP client, it shows up like a chat. And so for instance, I have, Whoa. I can, it's fully integrated on my Librem 5, for instance. So I, my messenger, Anthony. my chat, my SMS app on my phone also does XMPP natively. And so I, under the same, to me, an SMS or an XMP is all, XMPP is, message is all the same. If someone sends me a text message to jump chat and they support MMSs and stuff, you just get like an XMPP message with an with a image in it and all just works. Um, and uh, it is, uh, the URL is jmp.chat. So... Okay, okay jmp.c. Yeah, very That's, the I learn all the best stuff. Yeah, from the, Kyle. the website's very, it. very bare bones. It's <laughs> okay, I tell you, he's a, they do. I mean, even their tech support is over, wow. over XMPP. And so you want support, you send them a, a, a XMPP message, and it just and it's great. So, what's great about it, I mean, I so I use it. It's a great for me, it's a backup if I want to have an extra, if I want to do a VoIP call somewhere, if say I'm abroad and for whatever reason I'm on a, either a cellular plan that doesn't offer. Um, roaming, or I just want to use my my VoIP number. I can use that. But anyway, yeah, it's great. But that's an example. So yeah, I use both of these technologies even today. But what we, I mean, what we saw for both of those, I mean, you could pin some of the blame on both of those on Google, where they initially embraced both of those technologies, right, and then started acting like they were going to expand and, and enhance that. And everyone said, okay, these are the new standards, and everyone's going to start using them. And then the moment they abandoned those standards and, and st decided, for example, in XMPP, they wanted to abandon their chat client number seven and start chat client number eight with hmm. its own protocol. Um, and they abandoned XMPP after embracing it, right? And so that 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 was a signal to everyone else. Oh, okay, well, there's no reason to, this is going away now. Google has abandoned it. They were the, the big company behind it, supporting it. So we, we should all get back to locking down chat because it's very beneficial to make it, they cause friction for moving chat platforms, right? And so, and same with RSS. But yeah, I, both of those are used, are still used today. I still use them, and I would love, and I actually think that there is a chance to see both of them because of this um, renaissance of open standards to see both of them um, see a, a second heyday. For I mean, for example, Mastodon right now, a Mastodon account, you can append RSS to to someone's account and get an RSS feed of their posts. You know, there's yeah, all that's kinds how my, of uh, cool stuff like yeah. that. That's how my Twitter feed works right now. I don't even, I don't, I, I consume on Twitter still because there's still some stuff that I want to look up, especially for example, um, I live in Houston, Texas, and we did not have potable water for two days last week. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it was at the wow. beginning of this week. I can't even remember. It's all running together, but uh, yeah. So for updates, I was checking Twitter uh, we had a power out. Actually, yeah, it was a power outage af uh, the weekend after Thanksgiving. And a few uh, water treatment plants went offline. And the pressure dropped. And when that happens, we are under a boil notice for two days. And while they wait for the tests and fix everything. Anyway, it was terrible. Um, but yeah, so I, I still consume on Twitter. But I don't post there really anymore. Very rarely. I'll still retweet here and there. But my posts, I start on Mastodon. And then I use um, If This and That to pick up the RSS feed from my Mastodon account, and then that automatically posts to Twitter because I don't want to mess with two accounts really. And like you said earlier, Kyle, I, you know, this, the interaction and the conversations that I want to have tend to be on Mastodon now because all of the people I might want to interact with have all moved there. So it's, it's great. I did want to ask you something, Kyle. So, you know, as a security expert, as our, our, you know, our resident security expert here, <laughs> I wondered Going back to the conversation about avoiding vendor lock-in and about this, the the rebirth of of interest in in owning your own space on the web, you know whether it's you know even a, a smaller group or your own personal space or you know avoiding the the large vendors. 
I wonder if if we could have a little bit of that conversation through a security lens. For example, what is the benefit of avoiding lock-in? The benefit and also the downside of of avoiding vendor lock-in. Doc mentioned, you know, certain things maybe work better at a larger scale. There are certain security controls that are easily implemented maybe by a larger company, but I wonder if that's necessarily true. So right now, I think a lot of people actually are questioning the security controls on that Twitter is using right now because a lot of things have gone wrong. For example, multi-factor authentication broke early on. I think they've probably fixed it by now, but there are some things going wrong and I, I, I don't have a lot of confidence in Twitter's ability to keep anything secure. Certainly not my information. I mean, I don't tr- share anything there that that uh, that I don't mind being public, I guess. But, but so so taking that versus the the risks of managing, you know, your own security on a small or individual scale, for example, running a Mastodon server. People who maybe have an instance that's that's hosting accounts for I don't know, 500 people, something like that. Or um, people, you know, with our own individual Mastodon instances, my own individual personal blog, um, by avoiding the vendor lock-in, I I then have to take responsibility again for those security controls. So I just kind of wondered if if you could talk a little bit about that, about your your feelings on that. Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, Twitter's sort of a special case right now because a lot of the security concerns about them are about the fact that most of the security team seems to be gone. And so there's concern about all the work that that team was doing, who's doing it now, you know, who's left to do it and are they overloaded and overwhelmed and everything like that. Right. Uh, So so that's a slightly different case than sort of the, the idea behind if you're a large company, you're secure, you know, um, or there's an assumption of that. It's true that when you get to a certain size, you have the ability to make certain investments into either security staff or security products that someone who's small may not be able to. I mean, it's also true that you probably are getting more eyeballs looking at your defenses maybe uh, than a smaller person. But when it comes to something like Mastodon or hosting things yourself or any moving away from sort of a centralized solution, to me, the advantage, one security advantage is uh, this idea that to me, one of the, uh, Biggest contributions that Moxie Marlin Spike has made to security, and this is probably not on anyone else's list because he's done all these other contributions. But to me, it was coining the phrase trust agility. And he uh, ah. did this back uh, many years ago at this point, uh, so, sort of during early days of red phone before things were called signal days. Uh, when he was talking about open SS, the context was open SSL vulnerabilities and the concern about um, vendors, certificate authorities that had been compromised and their ability to issue bad certificates for good um, domains. So for example, they could issue a false certificate for google.com and potentially inspect and decrypt traffic that's supposed to be going to Google. And he coined this term trust agility to discuss the ability, the fact that if a CA was compromised, there's very there's not that much recourse. You sort of innately have to trust them, and trust agility was the ability of a of you to revoke your trust or move your trust if someone who you previously trusted had has proven themselves to be untrustworthy. So in the case of CAs, it's sort of an on or off switch. If um, you if you issue trust to a certificate authority and then they find themselves to be trustworthy, you either have to say, I do not trust any of their certs anymore, um, or you have to decide, well, I will trust them in the future. And that's pretty much your choices. And so that has very low trust agility. You can't necessarily easily move your trust. Uh, as, as this applies to sort of centralized things, if everything's, if, if your security is all sort of hedged and you root all of your trust in one entity, one company, let's say, or maybe two companies, that's not a lot of trust agility. If you decide later on that you don't trust that company, especially if they are proprietary and especially if they engage in things like lock-in and don't use open standards, you have less recourse, less ability to remove your trust from them and move that trust to someone else um, without, other than just like, I'm not using that product or whatever it is anymore. So by moving your social media uh, to Mastodon, you have much greater trust agility because what it allows you to do is 
decide which instance or instances you trust. Um, and maybe you say, I trust no instances except the one that I manage myself. You have that option. But you may say, I don't have the ability or the inclination or the time to manage my own instance. So, I, But I am willing to grant trust to a different instance for now uh, because you realize that whoever's the administrator of that instance can read DMs and things like that, just like they can on Twitter. Uh, and just right. like I'm sure people that are in powerful positions in Twitter right now have requested and have the ability to read DMs of celebrities and other things because that would be too tempting of a thing to... Uh, to not have that power, Yikes. right? Uh, in any case, if later on in, on a Mastodon instance, it comes out that someone that the administrators were untrustworthy, you have high trust agility. You have the ability to move your trust from that instance to one that you do trust or one that you self-host and it's sort of inherently trust, uh, which to me is a, a huge security benefit. But let's say you're, you know, a person in a position of running an instance that hosts maybe 500, 1,000 people, then suddenly you're taking on the burden for all of those people as well, in a way. So I don't know. I just wonder, I wonder a lot of things. I mean, obviously, we're we're all very biased here. We have an open source and open standards bias. And I, I want to tell the world, you know, and remind us all that, that uh, you know, open source and open standards are obviously the way to go, especially, you know, for security benefits. But it's nice to outline exactly what they are now and then so we can remind ourselves. Well, yeah, well, I mean, in, in that case, if you're taking on the burden or the responsibility of hosting an instance that other people, you know, that especially like say 500 plus people are using, I mean, that you're taking on a responsibility, you're hosting a service for other people. That's, that's a pretty serious thing. Mm -hmm. And if there's any sort of security concerns or security risks at doing that, you're taking those on yourself, you know? And so you ideally if you're choosing an instance to land on, you want to uh, make sure that, that, that the people who are, are hosting that instance take that seriously um, and, and secure their instance, you know, for, in all the various yeah. ways. But I mean, that's the thing is, these sorts of things, it's not like being a proprietary company or a company that has proprietary software is magic. Uh, it's the same sort of issues Definitely and same not. sort of problems. <laughs> I mean, the main difference is the level of transparency you might get to see what's happening behind the scenes or who's pulling the levers or things like that. But those of us who've worked for, you know, large tech companies or have been around that, you see the same sort of, you know, you or have seen, for example, proprietary worked on code that never saw the light of day, but was within a company. It's not like magically software developed in, 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 the, in silence. It has a higher level of quality or anything. It's not like, you know, people are putting no. only devoting their best code uh, when it's not, when no one else is going to see it, you know, it's not going to be public. And, you know, some would say the converse is true, but anyway, yeah, I, the thing I like about from a security standpoint for something like Mastodon is that you have options um, and it, there's more transparency. You see what's, you, you have more of a view into what's going on. You're, you're having to rely less on, you on, what you're being told, I guess. There's more of an ability to audit things. Yeah, love it. Um, but at the same time, there is that temp that temptation to, uh, let's say, outsource that to somebody, to host, you know, uh, manage, if you're running a WordPress site, let's say, and you, you, don't, you don't have to necessarily be a security expert. You can trust the people who run WordPress.com or something like that. So there's... Because it's an open standard. There is that temptation. Well, that's the thing is, yeah, you can do open... that because both WordPress is built off of free software and that it's based on the open open standards of the web. Yeah, absolutely. Right? You know, yeah. so you have the... Imagine if, for example, uh, we were talking about blogging and it didn't use open standards and it required a special it didn't you couldn't just use whatever web browser, for instance, you wanted to view this blog. You had to use the client that you had to use a WordPress app um, and mm -hmm. to view the WordPress blog and they hosted their own blog uh, platform that you could then create blogs on. And then decide you decided you didn't want to. You wanted to move your blog to something else. Well, you you, you couldn't because, uh, you know, the, the right. fact that it's all open standards sort of leads to that. But, you know, that doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. Like the last time it was open, uh, there are a couple of, there are a number of different causes that I, I would say caught, could you could point to this for why things started swinging back toward closed standards again. But to me, the biggest one uh, was the smartphone because it allowed... Mm. 
by having this brand new thing that didn't really exist before in that way, um, even though it was just a little computer, because it didn't seem like it was a little computer, it allowed the people who had the tightest control over it to create new rules that you wouldn't have accepted on your, your desktop computer or your laptop, uh, but you accept on this new platform because it's a brand new device um, that for some reason isn't being sold as a computer. So, you know, for instance, on your, on your laptop, you would never accept that, well, I can only get install software on my laptop that comes from the vendor who made my laptop. If they say it's okay using right. their software, using their program to allow it through, but we all accepted that on our and accept it now in many cases on our smartphones, you know. Right, even when it's completely unnecessary. This is the first thing that my first reaction when you know the the new smartphones when the iPhone first came out, Android phones first came out was there this ridiculous tendency to turn everything into an app when it didn't need to be. Mm-hmm. Things could easily be a mobile website. And, and, you know, but everyone, we needed an app. And, and now, again, now we have to go through that gateway of the, the vendor, the, the manufacturer, um, which, of, which is a completely other converse, different conversation, for maybe for another time about that's something that's coming up with this new Twitter acquisition is um, there's a lot more noise suddenly about the, uh, the uh, walled Apple garden now because of the, the controls. Yeah, and there should yeah. be. It, there's, a, there's another factor that I think always applies, and I'll just call it do-more-ism. Um, we, you know, like, for example, just go back to word processing. Imagine this. I'm, uh, you don't just want italic and capitalization and underline. You want a whole bunch of other formatting things. And so word processes got more and more complicated with footnotes and, um, and all kinds of, you know, margins and everything else. But so... This is what's happened in some ways with um, with writing online. I mean, one of the wonderful things about um, HTML versus like was uh, uh, SMTL. What was the what was the more complicated version of that 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 simplified um, HTML? SGML, I think it was, um, but it was complicated. It was a complicated way to do formatting. The wonderful thing about HTML is it left a lot of formatting up to the uh, up to the reader. You can make it bigger or smaller. You can change the typeface, all that kind of stuff. And then, as you wanted it to be more like as as more producers wanted it to do more like what word processing did, it became more and more complicated. You couldn't. It became more and more harder and harder to edit in simple HTML. There are very few simple HTML um, uh, uh, composing systems left anymore. The nice thing with, with um, WordPress is you could switch over to what they call text mode from the visual mode and you can see HTML in there and you can work HTML into it if you want. Um, but if you go over to what um, Microsoft did, they, had, they created their sort of HTML-like really complicated, horrible formatting that made it almost impossible for others to interpret it and then if you copy that and stick it in an email or something, it gets really hosed. And now on, on email, for example, um, and I've talked to Apple about this, I use their their mail client. I would use Thunderbird if it didn't just break. So, um, and there's nobody to fix it, um, at least in my experience. So, so I use Apple's Apple's mail. Okay, uh, you can't you cannot say I I'm going to want to see this in sans serif. Uh, type or in Helvetica or something like that. It has to come in and whatever the sender made it. So everything turns into really tiny type. And I've talked to them about this and they can't fix it. They won't fix it. They're not going to do it, you know, and then they, and then they subtract out stuff that's useful to you. Like they used to have a, a window called activity where you could actually like live monitor all the thing, all the flows of data that were going on. They just compressed it down to just one now, just like get mail. <laughs> you know, That's it. You know, Nothing else. There's a big window that has one thing in it rather than ten things in it, depending on how many email clients you're. Run- I mean, email addresses you're working at the same time. So what's happened is both makers like Apple making things more complicated and, and creating dependencies at the same time, and then removing ways that you can control what you can do with them. And that's that's part of the trade-off as well. And and it's not trade-off is even the wrong word because nobody's really wanting to engage in this trade. It all happens outside their well, knowledge. It's sort of like the arc right. of s- sort of startup to establish dominant company where 
you know, you have this this sort of yeah. you have a scrappy startup somewhere who makes something that that does have utility and is and gets popular use. Okay, so then it gets wide adoption, let's say, and often because it's simple or whatever it is, for some, whatever reason, they're able to make it better than existing things. They listened to their users. They made all of the things that they needed to make to make it popular. Now it's popular. Now they start to get market dominance. And there's some crossover point there at some point after market dominance where they no longer must uh, do whatever the their customers want. You know, they no, no longer have to appeal to the customers completely because the customers can't easily pack up and leave. Once they've sort of established dominance and lock-in, there's a point where you start seeing this, for example, uh, not that long ago, Instagram completely changed their UI. And I everyone I know that used that platform complained, you know, hated it, hated how they changed the interface, but they changed it anyway. Um, regardless of whether their customers wanted to use it because they're, they could, because you had fewer choices to, you know, you, what, what else were you going to do? Cause they had, they had lock-in and dominance on the platform. So there comes this point where you start seeing features that aren't sort of customer centric or at least not widespread customer centric. Maybe they have some sort of enterprise customer or something that wants something, but you start seeing these things change because they have dominance and now you can't move. Sometimes the change is, well, we have to integrate with this other thing. We're using market dominance in this one area to push this this other business that, w- that we want to take flight and is not as good as our competitors. But I mean, we saw this, you know, this was basically a summation of the 90s for Microsoft where they had market dominance in one platform that allowed them to um, push their own things that weren't as good as competitors, but still those things got dominance because they have monopoly in one area, you know. And the cycle continues. I'm, you know, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to make any predictions here because that never, never goes well. But, but I, you know, I wonder what we're going to see. You know, you mentioned in your blog, you know, that hopefully we should po- probably see the, you know, this rebirth and people um, rejecting vendor lock-in. As uh, I wonder if we will start seeing more and more tools to, let's say, ease the pain, as you say, you know, there obviously, we, you know, we keep talking about Mastodon because it's a really easy example, but, but there are, you know, again, people are developing tools to, to ease the transition out of vendor lock-in. And I wonder if that's something that we're going to see more and more of, um, and, and, and a larger scale and, and, and things that have greater impact maybe than something like Twitter or Mastodon. But, um, I also wonder if this is a good segue you know, talking about vendor lock-in into Doc's update about um, VRM Day. So, so yeah, Project VRM is this um, um, cabal of about 500 people on a, on a list that started as the project at the Berkman Center, now the Berkman Klein Center, um, the purpose of which was encourage development of tools that made us both independent but better able to engage. Basically, that's, that's an aspect of being open. You want to be able to be independent and you want to be engaging, and you want to be able to do it in your own way at maximum agency. And um, uh, for and we do these twice a year in advance of the Internet Identity Workshop, which is a very successful collection of people that met twice a year. This turned into a, a re, a, an unconference so active and big and effective and useful and leveraged that we had to turn people away this year, um, this fall. Um, so I suggest if you want to be at the next IIW, that's iiworkshop.org. Um, that's the short link. Um, book it now. <laughs> because <laughs> well, it, it, it's, it's and anyway, so what happened was that we always have VRM day uh, where one chance for people who are at least local or coming to IW to meet and generally 30 to 50 people show up and, um, and we have a fun lunch and stuff like that. Uh, but this time it coincided with a salon series that my wife Joyce and I are putting on with the um, the Ostrom workshop at Indiana University, um, near which we now also live. So I'm talking to you from our Santa Barbara house right now. It's complicated, uh, and um, and our our guest speaker um, and this is a salon, so it's really a discussion. Was Roger McNamee? Roger is describes himself as a as a um, as a musician, which he is. He's an outstanding musician and. But he's also a VC, and he's an early investor going way back. He invested; it was a big deal with Palm, some other things. But he was an early investor and advisor to Mark Zuckerberg, and um, 
and regret and regrets everything that Zuckerberg's done in recent years, and even wrote a book in 2018 or 19, I think it came out in 19, called Zucked, um, about what's happened with Facebook and with with surveillance and and how normative and awful that has become because he sees lots and lots of secondary, tertiary, and quaternary cascading effects of of spying on people on a more or less constant basis that um, that is not talked about enough or is addressed. And he's he gave a very compelling talk, and I'll give you the link for that in a bit. Uh, and we had an owl in the room. Owls are cool. Owl is this 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 hydrant shaped little thing that has cameras in the top that will at a little in a conference room look at everybody in the room and 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 put on the screen on your zoom screen or whatever screen you're using um a, the, the image of the people who are talking or multiple people talking it has intelligence in it and the mics are outstanding it works really well so we did that and um and the meeting didn't end it continued and um uh at IW for the 3 days of it we had breakouts for our group that came out of that that was energized by what Roger said, uh, called Roger and We, um, a play on the movie Roger and Me that uh, Michael Moore came out with a thousand years ago. And um, and then at the third of those, um, uh, just wrote a whole bunch of stuff on the whiteboard. And what came out of it was somebody, you know, <laughs> wrote end surveillance capitalism up there, saw it spelled ESC, took as a little symbol the escape key on everybody's keyboard, put that above it and surveillance capitalism, drew a t-shirt around it. And now already people are getting that t-shirt uh, at Zazzle and other t-shirt shops where you can custom make your own t-shirts. Um, some of them wore them at Thanksgiving or one of them did at least. And um, I just put that in uh, images of that in in the blog post I wrote about it. But the intent with it is at least to create a movement. And as we put it to Roger, who came back on the last day and sat with us for another couple hours or something, um, is to have a movement here, you know, um, you know, something like, um, the civil rights movement or the, you know, um, women's rights or anybody else's rights, but it's based on human rights. Now, as far as we know, nobody has been killed by, uh, surveillance capitalism, though a case could possibly be made in a few cases. But there's clearly a, a human right involved of for, for, to privacy and to being let alone, as Warren and Brandeis put it in their landmark paper about privacy uh, in the two centuries ago. Uh, and maybe we can make something happen with this. I don't know. There's a lot of there's a lot of great feeling in it right now, so I want to put it out there as a thing. And um, uh, we don't have a, a mastered instance yet. I'm not sure that's the right thing to do. Everybody seems to want to create an instance the same way they created a website in 1996, right? And um, I'm on two of them, and it's confusing. So I'm not sure. I'm not <laughs> well, sure that's the right to way be to go. On another, and, and well. the third one, and I should get on on, on Kyle's with purism as well. And um, and uh, but but there's a. Uh, there's a chance for something here, I think. I think there's something in the water right now about this. I think people are fed up with it. I think it's also failing um, in some ways. I think actually, um, you know, it's it's inevitable it is going to come out how poorly most surveillance in the semi-wild works. And I, I, by that, I mean surveillance of you at Facebook actually works quite well. You know, if it knows you're taking, you know, you're going to take a vacation somewhere or you're looking for scooters or whatever else, you're going to get ads for that. And there's, if you've opted into that and it is basically opt-in, you're opting just by being on Facebook, it actually works pretty well. I hate to admit that. Um, a lot of it sucks. But if you've if you've decided you want to be there and uh, be followed, th that works. But it's of, a, it's of an, an exclusive kind. There's nothing else quite like it. Um, and Amazon is in a similar position. Amazon knows what you've wanted. It gives you ads for more of the same. They follow you out on the web and gives you ads out there. But in the wild, where you're just at example.com and a thousand, um, and they're up to that number, cookies and other in, uh, invasive, invasive techno microbes invade your browser and report your whereabouts and activities to parties unknown by the zillions. Um, that doesn't work very well. In fact, it works very poorly and it's a waste of money and it's a waste of everybody's time. 
And that's got to crash. This has got to crash. We've had um, Dr. Fu on here at least two or three times a year or two ago. He'd be fun to have back. And he's done amazing research on this. And he produces something called Page X-Ray that lets you look at what every every website is trying to shove in your browser. And it's amazing how, how much there is out there and how poorly it's being covered. And I should add, by the way, I'm on um, Mastodon. And for Mastodon, I'm on, uh, what is it called? Um, no, it's not dot social. It's, um, oh, I should look at it now. It's it's all the journalists. It's journa.host, G-O-O-U-R-N-A.host. One of the first things I put on there is, who here is going to bite the hand that feeds them on this thing? Mm. Crickets. Crickets. And this is hundreds, I don't know, thousands of journalists. A lot of them are following me. I'm going to do it again. Not that More people are following me now. So maybe if I ask it again, so somebody will step forward. Did you but move your Twit social derelict. to journo host? Or are you no, I'm to- on both, oh, of course. Okay. I'm on both. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds bad. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, I know. And and it's two different tabs. And it's like, uh, where am I? What? And, and so you have a summer home and a winter home. But if you want to, you you only have to have one home. You can, instead of forwarding address <laughs> yeah, move to your from your old home, home to your new home if you want to. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to. I got so nicely advised by you guys the last time we had a call. And and I forgot two thirds of it. and And so now I'm sort of confused that I don't want to slow down this talk uh, oh, by good. debugging my own inadequate understanding it, of, of Mastodon. It's an interesting conversation about identity, you know, as you're, you're talking about this, all this work that's come out of the internet identity workshop, but it's really an identity conversation. It's identity as domain, identity yeah. as, you know, who am I and where do I live? You know, that's, that's kind of the thing. And so example, you said everybody wants their own instance. I mean, I think to an extent, I think I I wanted us to have an instance just because I figured I should put my money where my mouth is on my, you know, spiel about uh, the benefits of identity uh, associated with a domain. So it's now on our domain. Now, uh, the one caveat is, of course, it is not our domain that where the podcast is because I decided I was too. I decided that the domain reality two dot social was too irresistible. So uh, our Mastodon <laughs> instance is at reality2.social, not at reality2cast.com, but it's still us, and it, you know it's uh, it, it is it's an easy well, way well, this to verify up, that, that we are who we are. So here's an, 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 an interesting, important, and hard to explain point, which is well, I'll probably do a bad job of it, and that is we're so, and I've said this too much, but we are so early in being digital beings, and here we are. Um, you know, I mean, identity to a large degree is is dependent on where you are, okay? And and not just who you are, it's where you are. And it's all, we understand where through prepositions, over, under, around, through, beside, within, alongside, at, of, and, you know, in, over. Uh, and and these are, these are very much tied to the physical world and, and are being physical beings in the physical world. And we try to replicate that online and it's really, really hard and weird and all of it is experimental. And in the meantime, it's so much easier to think, to look at a platform and say, I know what that is. That, that's there. That's Google. That's, that's, that, you know, that's one place I can go on Twitter. That's the, that's the um, preposition. We're on that. And the suggestion is we are on that real estate. That is Twitter. And I am there I'm not somewhere else. I have that page open or I'm in, in that app or on that app. Again, choose your preposition. And that's very appealing. It is very easy for people to understand. You know, I'm on TikTok. This is on TikTok. I'll take it off of TikTok and I'll put it on on uh, on YouTube. That's another place, but I know where that is. And some big company is running it and I'm there and it's all Disneyland. You know, I'm, I'm in Disneyland. I know where I am. And when I leave it, I'm not in Disneyland anymore. Maybe I've taken my treats and I've put them you know, at Knott's Berry Farm, and now I'm over there. But it's very hard to get away from the need to have the sense of concrescence that comes with with a great big at, <laughs> you know, that's a place. And and Mastodon's kind of weird with that. It's like, well, you're here, you're there, you're federated, you're not federated. I'm I'm in an instance. It's well, it's you know, it's the, like it's it's. I mean, it's like it's like yeah, go ahead, geography Kyle. in a way where you know everyone. Yeah on the previous social network all lived in this gigantic city. They all lived in New York city 
and they got used to living in New York City. And everyone who lives in New York, if people who live in a very large city can probably attest to how insular it can be because you have all of your needs met. You maybe don't feel the need to leave. There's people in New York City who are proud of the fact they never leave the city. They don't never need to leave the city ever. Yeah. Or the zip code. I mean, yeah, it's a, but so yeah. everyone lived in New York City. And now, but there were people living in these other towns and there's some issue with New York City and now everyone's looking for other places to move. And now that they've looked around the move, some people decided to move to another big city because they like big city living. So you would say like Mastodon Social is another big city, not as big as New York, but it's pretty big and it has the same sort of feel, sort of. Um, and then there's other people who are like, well, you know what? I, already, I had a taste of big city living. I kind of want to move to a small town and have a, have a little neighborhood where I know my neighbors and, you know, they know and every, me. And we're all into the same stuff yeah, and, because we're, we're in a commune and we're into infrastructure. Well, and then, yeah. And then some people say, you know what? I want to go fully off grid. I don't want to live in any township, however large or small. I want to have my own, you know, uh, tiny home on land. I'm just going to get some land, clear it out, build my <laughs> tiny home. It's going to run on solar and I'm going to be here by myself, but I can still call everyone on the phone. I can still communicate and everything, but I don't have, I don't want any neighbors, but I can swap my vegetables. Yeah, but on this protocol, everyone <laughs> can do that and still communicate with each other. And you can, you don't, you can move from town to town and your mail still gets forwarded to you. You can still, you can still yeah. correspond over mail yeah. with your friends and family and send Christmas cards and do all of that stuff. What I've noticed though, is that <laughs> extending that metaphor even more is as I've seen people move to their small town, I've noticed that they have felt more comfortable letting their guard down because when you're in a big city, you're being accosted all the time. And you feel like someone's going to mug you at any point. And you don't meet people's eyes and you don't chat up the stranger next to you in line necessarily, you know, because that's considered yeah. kind of like socially, you have the social pressure not to do that. But I'm noticing people on Mastodon are being more open about their personal lives a little bit who were previously very closed on Twitter because they, at least as of yet, don't have an army of trolls every time they say something jumping into their comments and trashing it, you know, with a bunch of garbage. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're more willing to be more vulnerable, I suppose. They don't have to, they're not walking around putting up a guard all the time. I do it. I, I've interacted more with just random people. I, yeah, it's interesting. But something that's also interesting that, that because of what Doc just mentioned that he signed up on JournalHost is that's an interesting example because that's, again, it's a little commune for journalists, let's say. Uh, but a lot of people have blocked it because there is a sense on Mastodon that you don't necessarily want to become fodder for somebody's story. You don't want your 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 toot embedded in you know in something that a journalist is working on. And I, I think that's an interesting attitude. I don't quite necessarily understand it, but it, it is there. And there is this rejection a little bit of that instance that I have seen. And I that in and of itself is interesting, but. Also, in my mind, it's not necessarily the way it should be done. Or, you know, I don't, maybe, you know, maybe it works for somebody. Maybe, you know, the, the local timeline is great for journalists to interact with each other, but maybe not necessarily the, the rest of the world. In my mind, I think it was, I want to say, ironically, it was the, a, a Texas publication. And I'm going to get this wrong. It's either Texas Tribune or Texas <laughs> Observer, somebody. Anyway, they've Texas set up. Texas is the capital of irony. Yes, right. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> But it, it, it's the hometown for exactly. irony. But it's a publication, a local, small, independent publication somewhere in Texas that uh, set up its own instance. And each reporter, journalist has their own account at at Texas, whatever the publication is named. I'll have to look that up and put it in the link. But um, but yeah, and that's how they're, they're identified. And I would love to see that with other major outlets. You know, New York Times, every reporter has, you know, reporter name at New York Times that social or, you know, whatever it is they want. But um, I don't know. I think that to me is a more in interesting use, but I, I, again, it will evolve to be whatever people want it to be. So that, you know, is my opinion and that may not be what ends up working out the best, but I, uh, I think there is, there's a particularly u interesting use case for journalism on Mastodon and I'm anxious to see how that comes together. Yeah. I, I think and I, 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 I need to spend more time with it, obviously. But given, and I, Dave Weiner's my bellwether on a lot of this stuff, and because he's a developer and he's working with it, and um, he is very jazzed about Mastodon and what's possible there, you know. 
Well, he's not leaving Facebook or, or Twitter either, you know. So it's uh, um, no good. I mean, I think I, it's I all hope it's a gi- excited about it. It's all a giant learning thing. I mean, it. I mean, we're all, you know. Again, I think it's really early. It's really early in whatever this is going to be. Yep. Well. In the meantime, we'll, we'll experiment with our early uh, instance and see see what happens to reality two dot social. But in the meantime, I'm moving the podcast account there. So we again because there are a lot of benefits. I you know I understood that the the instance we were on was something that was also frequently blocked, and and that did not please me. So, um, you know, you, if you want to be careful who your neighbors are, and be careful what sort of content you want to be adjacent to. Um, I personally felt like it was a good idea to go, go to uh, set up our own tiny house. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see if that was the right yeah, answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm really excited. To I like have that. It. A tiny house. We built a tiny house. <laughs> it's like <laughs> hopefully by the time this episode comes out, it will uh, actually have something on it and maybe be migrated. So we'll see. Yeah, we'd like to build a tiny house in Bloomington. By the way, we need to build a little, little house. So yeah, have we, have little we little house off the freeway? Have we uh, sufficiently covered it? I think we have. Ex- have we sufficiently exhausted enough topics? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, this is a this is quite the quite the for, for those patient episode. enough to stay with us all the way. Thank you. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Thanks, thanks uh, always for listening to our uh, our stuff. So and we'll get out a newsletter on one of these things, one or more of these things. Yeah. And some some more toots. They don't call them toots anymore, just though. Posts. Really, I, I see that's. I know, but I, you know, I, what we'll, was we'll wrong with it? Is it, is it like so it's a synonym for a fart. Come on, everything's a synonym. I think, like Eugen never, I think, really necessarily wanted to do that. There's he tells a story that it was an early a early investor essentially like said, hey, if you do this, if you start call, if you call them toots, I will give you X amount of money to get started on this. It's like okay, fine. What do I care? You know, and he did it, and I think. Yeah. Every time he gets, I think after years of doing this, he just kind of got tired of the joke. You know, it's sort of like someone who has a last name that has an obvious joke associated with, you know, for example, I have a friend whose mm, name is Marsha and every person who meets her for the first time who is old enough to Marcia, remember the Marcia. show goes, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. And yeah. I'm sure the first 70 times she heard it, it was at least tolerable, but I'm sure at some point uh, it got intolerable. Uh even though people mean well and they're being funny. And I imagine in this case, it's the same sort of thing. It's like, look, I, it was just supposed to, it was just like a side thing. I didn't even care. I'm, I don't, I didn't even get the joke, but now every time it's a joke. So I think he just said, you know what? I I'm done. I'm done with that. We're just going to call it post. Yeah, that makes sense. I, um, yeah, I get tired of being called drunk man. People read my last oh, name yeah. and they say drunk man. People like, literally can't read. There's no N. I don't get yeah. it. They just autocomplete. Their brain autocompletes the word drunk. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Anyway, well, thank you to everyone who has made it this far. <laughs> we will uh, we'll have some good stuff next time. And uh, again, we we love feedback. Get in touch. Um, all of those things. And until then. <laughs>